But today we're going to read from Luke 9 and verse 57. And the subject is New, Year, New Year's resolutions. Uh, the Christian faith involves resolutions, vows, and commitments. We believe in Jesus Christ. We resolve to follow him. And that's the subject of Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. Now, when we speak of resolutions and commitment, we speak of the engaging of the will. Now, this is not the most popular subject or most familiar subject in Reformed churches. For some reason, the Reformed church can be a little weak on this point. But it is part of the Christian faith, the Christian life. We resolve, we engage the will that goes a direction that is formed by the mind and the affections or the heart. But there is a part of the Christian life that involves the engaging of the will. That is, I will do this. I am committing myself to this track. So that is a very important part of the Christian life. And that's what we're going to look at this morning from Luke 9, verses 57 to 62. So let's stand together and hear the word of our living God. The living word from the living God this morning from Luke 9. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray you would open this up for us this day by your Holy Spirit. We pray this would be life transforming for us this year in this body. Father, that your words would take root in our lives. Please, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, let's look at the basic message of this pericope in the Gospels first, and then I want to go into the very heart of the subject of following Jesus this morning. What we find here, first of all, is that Jesus is very serious. In fact, this again, this is... A revelation of, of the intensity of Christ. It's just intense. Isn't it? I mean, you read this, you go, well, that was intense. Isn't that the way you received it this morning? I think he's serious. He's, he's really dead serious about people following him, isn't he? Well, yeah, he is. I think that's the message that we get from this. The, the basic point is, is really... In the last verse, 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. That's it. That's the message this morning. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. That's what Jesus is telling you. And it's for us to say amen, yeah. And to resolve it and to, to decide, to commit 
to, to sign up for what Jesus has presented for us here. Now, it's interesting, we don't use the word vows very much in the Christian church today. That's just not just the Reformed church. I don't really hear it among our evangelical friends. We just don't talk about vows. We talk about marriage vows, right? We hear about marriage vows. But that's pretty much it. We don't hear about covenant and vows in the modern church. But it is very much a biblical idea. So I want to I want to go back and look at the very concept of covenant, promise, vow. I, w- I want to look at that first. And, and you know that first and foremost, it's God who vows. God covenants. God promises. God comes to us, I promise you. He says this to Abraham. And he says to Moses. And he says it to David. I promise you, I will bless these people. I will save them. I will send my son I will establish my kingdom. I will give you eternal life. Those are his promises. But it's not just a promise. We use the word covenant. Sometimes the word testimony. Sometimes we use the word vow. Sometimes we use the word I swear. But when you hear those words, what are you thinking? You're thinking, boy, this person is serious. And God is serious. One of my favorite lines is, that one shared by my brother Josh Schuiso last Sunday, where at the end of that section in Isaiah 9, he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. You know, as if God is binding himself, God is committing himself, God is vowing, God is swearing. And when somebody vows, sometimes they say, I swear or I vow and hope to die. In other words, I will do this. If I don't do it, God, kill me. Well, if someone says that, you say, wow, they're pretty serious, right? I mean, now, God is serious. That's where I want to begin this morning. God is serious. God vows, God covenants. That's why I love covenant theology. I don't know, sometimes we have the impression covenant theology is some esoteric, systematic, theological system. No, it's a dead serious God binding himself with an oath that he will do it. Covenant theology is dead serious theology. And man, we we should be teaching and preaching it and speaking of it. Covenant theology, God binding himself to get it done. That's, That's what it is. God swearing, vowing, promising on his own life that he will do this. Children, God commits to save us. Okay, that's the first word in your notes. God commits to save us. And you know what? That's really a comforting theology, isn't it? If God comes to you and says, I swear by myself that you are going to go to heaven. And you hear that from the Word of God, and that's the Spirit of God speaking to you this morning. Are you encouraged? Anybody encouraged by that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then in Hebrews 6, very intense language. Look at verse 13 in Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. People do this kind of stuff. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And the hope is going to heaven. We're going to glory. God has consummated our salvation. It's happening. That's, that's the firm resolution that God promised to us. And you can take that to the bank and everywhere else, whatever, however that statement goes. So, so God swears. God vows. Amen. But now we vow as well. It's legitimate. It's proper for us to commit, to promise, to resolve. We join in the covenant. We make a vow to God. And again, we don't talk about this very much. But let me just give you a few examples. I mean, they're throughout the Bible. Psalm 66, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you. (coughs) Excuse me. I shall pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered. Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Psalm 56, your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. Psalm 22, from you comes my praise to the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Psalm 61, 8, so I will sing praises to your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. It appears that much of the vow paying occurs in the assembly. But nevertheless, this commitment is really essential in the Christian life. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 9. Now in the Matthew 8 version of this pericope concerning this man who came to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, and the Matthew 8 version of it turns out to be a scribe, which is something of an important person in the modern or in the, the, the ancient religious sect of the day. So the scribe came to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And so Jesus says, okay, well, let me outline the nature of the commitment. Let me show to you what that commitment is going to look like if you're going to be my disciple. And so he comes out with these words. And I'm going to summarize seven descriptions concerning the nature of this commitment to following Jesus. And I'm going to draw it from this passage and a few other passages. Luke 14 draws into this as well. But let me begin with this. Very first, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to want to be with Jesus. Is that obvious? You know, you're going to follow somebody for the rest of your life. You better like them. And you better want to be with them. You want to desire to be in his presence. You want to be attracted to Jesus. And what is it that attracts us to Jesus but that he's a powerful savior? He's crushed Satan's head. He forgives the sinner woman at his feet. Think about everything. He tosses demons right and left, a legion of demons, into a, a bunch of pigs. He walks on the water, stills the storms, the creator, the savior, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. What's there not to like? Hallelujah. Thank you. What's there not to like about Jesus? The best savior, the best king. We sang about him in Psalm 45. Amen. I mean, what's there not to like about Jesus? Does these miracles, raises the dead. Did I mention that? Raises the dead. Hallelujah. We don't have to worry about dying when we hang out with Jesus. His friends die. What does he do to them? Raises them. Yeah, exactly. Four days later. It's okay. Whatever. Take a few extra days with it. No big deal. 
He raises the dead. How would you like to be with Jesus? We love Jesus. We're attracted to Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. Amen. A mighty Savior. A beautiful King. Absolutely. Psalm 63, it's like the psalmist says, my soul follows hard after thee. It's a mighty running, a pursuing, a seeking, longing, desiring to be with Jesus over everything else. And, you know, I step back and wonder why the low ebb of spirituality in American churches today. Why with us at times, a low ebb of spiritual growth, evangelism is kind of weak, kind of paltry. Spiritual discernment, not really there. Service, love for the church body. I mean, fill in the blanks. What's wrong with us? Sin sometimes having the upper hand in our lives. We see this. We're all dragging down into sin or we're all hardly excited about worship or getting together with God's people. What is it? What's what's going on with us? What's the root issue here? As, As Tozer said, why is our religious life so stiff and wooden? You know, it's like we're going through the motions or something. So lacking in holy, acute desire for God, to know God, to be arrested to his power, his grace, his works, his glory in the sanctuary. Why, why are we so anemic? We had to pinch ourselves like 48 times just to kind of get awake spiritually. You know, what, what's going on with this? Why doesn't God come here? Why do we have such a lack of his presence in our gatherings at times? Well, here, here's the secret. And this is what Tozer brings out in the pursuit of God. He says, you know what? You've got to seek him. Seek my face, O Jacob. Thy face, O Lord, will I seek. God wants you to seek him. God wants you wanting him. God likes you loving him. If you're sitting there going, I don't really care. He's not going to show up. You see, he waits to be wanted. He longs to be loved. Is that fair to say? We don't always think of God waiting. But there is a command to us to respond, a command to us to seek his face. And sometimes we don't respond very well with that, do we? No, brothers and sisters, we have to follow hard after God. Amen. And what is it? Other desires in our lives that crowd out our desire for God. Hey, guys, we always desire something. The Buddhists say, no, we don't. No, we don't. Hear no evil, see no evil. You do. Yes, you do, of course. There's always desire. You can't suppress it. It's it's always there. It's just a question of what are you desiring? What do you desire? What is the thing your heart is longing for and running after? If it's not God, what is it? We're very desiring people. And I so resonated to this prayer. The man of God prayed this prayer back in the early 20th century. I so resonate with this. Listen. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness. And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. Can any of you say that right now? Oh God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with more longing. I thirst to be made thirsty. 
Maybe that's where the prayer is right now in your life. Well, pray that prayer. Maybe you're still not thirsty. Maybe you don't desire. Maybe you're not quite there yet. But do you desire to desire? Do you long to love? Do you want to to want Jesus? I guess I'm pressing on whatever life there is. Is there life there? Then pray for it. Then lift up that prayer to God. Seek his face this morning. And long to be with Jesus. This is to keep believing in Jesus, following hard after him, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, to run with endurance the race set before us. That's number one, to desire to be with Jesus. Number two, following Jesus means that we are interested in hearing from him. We're interested in his voice, his word. We listen to him. We do what he tells us to do. He tells us, now listen, I want you to forgive your brother seven times today. I want you to love your enemy. I I want you to keep the least of these commandments and do good to those who despitefully use you. And what do you say? Yes, Lord. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's exactly what I'm going to do. These words dominate our thought lives, our words, our relationships, our actions. Amen. Number three. Following Jesus means that we're not afraid to go where he goes. To love and to serve others, to suffer with him and to declare the gospel of the kingdom of God. You know, it's an interesting verse in John 13, 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus in John 13, 36, Jesus said, I'm going somewhere you can't go with me. That's what he said. And Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, he said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. What do you think that means? It's kind of a cryptic verse. You ever, you ever hear that, see that verse before? What do you think he's saying there? He's saying, Jesus said, I'm going to Calvary, I'm going to the cross. You can't go with me, Peter. You cannot be on the cross next to me. There's a couple of thieves that are showing up, but you can't come to the cross with me but you will follow later. What's he saying? Your turn's coming. That's what he's saying. You will follow me later. That's the word he says to all of us too. I believe that we take that for ourselves. We can't follow him, children, literally. You know, as if, where's Jesus? I want to follow Jesus. You know, he's going to go to to Franktown this afternoon. I'm going to walk to Franktown with Jesus this afternoon. I can't do that, can I? Because I can't find Jesus in his human form. But what does this mean to follow Jesus? It's to go where he goes. Now, where does Jesus go? Just a couple of things. Let me just throw out a few things. Now, again, you can add to this. There's much more in the Gospels. So the first thing about where Jesus goes is that Jesus goes to church. We know that. He says, where two or three elders, he's talking to the disciples or apostles there, where two or three elders are gathered together, there I will be in the midst. It's a one passage dealing with the church, Matthew 18. The church is established on two or three elders. And Jesus said, where the church gathers, it's one of the few passages in the whole gospels relating to the church. Jesus says there, in the terms of the church in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathering in the church, Two or three elders, disciples, apostles, 
where they're gathered in the church, I will be there in their midst. So there's a very special thing about the church. Here's another clue as to where God is present. And I would say also where Jesus is present. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, what does that mean? What is it for the whole church to come together in one place? Does anybody know what that means? That's what's happening here. Okay, the whole church coming together in one place. Where the whole church comes together in one place and all speak, prophesy. If an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report, what? That God is truly among you. So the presence of God is found where? If you want, I want to be wherever Jesus is. Where do I go? I, I really am attracted to where Jesus is. Where should I go? It turns out Jesus is with his body. Now, let me ask you this. Does my head like to be where my body is? Okay, I mean, the four-year-olds can answer this. Is my head over there, children? You see... Mr. Swanson's head over there on the piano. Where is my head right now? Very much connected to my body. Would you all agree with that? Now my mind sometimes is out in the parking lot. I get that. But my head is on my body. And that's where Jesus is. Jesus is the head and he's with his body. And by the way, he's also with his bride. So... So that's where Jesus is. Now, let me add just a few other things. That's not the only thing. There's a few other things here. If Jesus was here on earth in bodily form, as he was in Galilee in AD 30, where would he be? Where he, he, I'm just making this super easy. Jesus is going to be in two places. He's going to be where the sick are. So wherever the sick are, you want to go minister to the sick, amen. Somebody's got COVID. You go minister to them, chances are Jesus is right there. So just keep that in mind. Jesus tends to be with the sick. And then secondly, Jesus is with humble sinners. He doesn't like to be with people who consider themselves righteous. Especially those who are self-righteous. He was with those who knew they were sinners. They usually called them publicans back then. Or publicans and sinners. These are people who already knew they were sinners and they wanted to repent of their sins. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't come for the righteous. He came to people who knew that they were sinners. So let me apply this. Go to the sick. Don't go to self-righteous, proud, hypocritical gaze. Do not go to proud gaze. Absolutely not. Don't go to proud liars or anybody else either. Don't want to go to any proud whatever. Don't go to them. Go to humble homosexuals on their faces before God crying out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Go to those people. You'll find them in the prisons. You'll find them in the ditches. You'll find them out in the streets. They are out there. And and from time to time, you find them in churches too. Amen. Okay, number four. This following Jesus, and this is from our text, does not allow for procrastination and second thoughts because Jesus needs a commitment and a resolution from us. Children, 
we follow Jesus and we don't look back. That's the second point. We don't look back. Okay, where it says L, that's look. We follow Jesus and we don't look back. Put the hand to the plow. Do not look back. Then he said to another, follow me. Verse 59 of our text. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a legitimate thing to do, doesn't it? Let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. That's a little, that's a shakeup. I mean, again, you know, what is he saying here? He's, he's saying this is urgent. This is calling for a deliberate, intentional throwing off of every other priority in your life for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's the principle that he's bringing out here. Now, again, qualification, the Lord places extremely high priority on caring for your parents in their old age to the point that John was told to care for Mary while Jesus was on the cross. We all remember that, right? And history bears it out that, that John brought Mary on the missionary trip up into Ephesus. In fact, you can go to Turkey today and find the home where Mary died because John took Mary to Ephesus where, of course, we all know that John was ministering. And, and so, of course, the kingdom of God was of essence. He's not staying in Jerusalem with Mary. He's bringing Mary to Ephesus with him. So I just use that as an illustration. Jesus is describing the path and the life of following him. Okay, this is what it is. John Calvin on this passage has a great segment. I want to read it for you. I don't want you to lose track of this, so I'm going to read it kind of slowly. Now listen. We must bear in mind that the inquirer here was a scribe who had been accustomed to a quiet and easy life had enjoyed honor and was ill-fitted to endure reproaches, poverty, persecutions, and the cross. He wishes indeed to follow Christ, but dreams of an easy and agreeable life, whereas the disciples of Christ must walk among thorns and march to the cross amidst uninterrupted afflictions. The more eager he is, the less he is prepared, speaking of the scribe. He seems as if he wished to fight in the shade and at ease, neither annoyed by sweat nor by dust and beyond the reach of the weapons of war. There is no reason to wonder that Christ rejects such persons. For as they rush on without consideration, they are distressed by the first uneasiness of any kind that occurs, lose courage at the first attack, give way, and basely desert their post. Okay, that's not the kind of warrior you want. This journey is not for the pliable. Remember pliable in Pilgrim's Progress. They hit the slew of despond. It was really the first negative experience that pilgrims had on the pathway. And there they are in the slew of despond and pliable gets out of the slew of despond, good riddance to this, and marches back into the city of destruction. That's it. I'm done with all this, you know, hassle. What? The Christian walk is going to be a hassle? I'm out of here. You know, that's Pliable's attitude. And that's not anybody who is going to be part of the life of Christ. It's a Shackleton-type resolution. Remember Shackleton and the ship endurance that makes it halfway down into the heart of Antarctica. It's, it's the one-way ticket to Antarctica. 
It's, it's the one-way ticket to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, for your evangelistic ministry on the streets of Riyadh. It's a one-way ticket. If somebody buys a one-way ticket to Riyadh for an evangelistic campaign in downtown Riyadh or in Afghanistan somewhere, and they say, okay, I buy the one-way ticket. What, 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 what kind of person would do that? You follow me? They're not coming back. They're giving up something. That's it. That's the picture here. It's Shackleton. It's pioneering missionaries. I think it was Roland Beecher who gave the example for us. And again, this just exemplifies a principle. Here's what he said. I will open Africa to the gospel or die trying. Average lifespan of missionaries for the first generation, seven years. He said, you've got to build a graveyard before you build churches there because you're going to die. And Africa will receive the gospel on the dead bodies of hundreds of missionaries. So you're going to throw your lives over the barbed wire and others are going to crawl over you as the kingdom of God makes it in the darkest corners of this world's environs. So brothers and sisters, when you embark on a long journey, a life journey, a world war, Long drawn out conflicts. What does it require? You know, if you say, well, I think I'm going to go to Safeway this afternoon. That doesn't require much of a resolution, does it? But if you're going to pull the trigger to to open up a world war and you're going to sign up for a world war that's going to last for six or seven years, that's not just going to Safeway this afternoon. That's going to take a resolution, a commitment a recognition of what you're getting into and a commitment of will, a half-heartedness will not do in such a case. Okay, number five. This following Jesus also involves a preference for Jesus above all things. I take this from the passage, but also Luke 14, 25. Let me just read this section. You can turn there if you like. It's almost a parallel passage, Luke 14, 25. Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Is that what he says? Take a look at the passage again. Great multitudes went with him. He turned and said to them, Anyone comes to me does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, In his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundations, not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. Well, what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet? him who comes against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So, verse 31, 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And brothers and sisters, this is the way the kingdom of God has been. This is the way the churches have been from the beginning. We get the big crowds. We get a lot of interest on the front end. God, Jesus gets a lot of attention with his miracles and big things going on. But, uh, but he, 
he just pokes a hole in the mega movement that's developing because there's just a lot of uncommitted looky-loos that show up in the crowd. And they just cannot say amen to this. That doesn't, they don't resonate with it. They don't say, oh yeah, amen, Jesus. Amen, I'm all in. Yeah, what he said. See, that's not the response here. It's typically not the response in his ministry. They're not willing to give up their life and these other relationships for the exclusive claims of Christ. Jesus came with a sword to divide families. We, you know, we saw this all the time in Japan. Almost in every case where there were converts in my parents' ministries in the 1960s and 70s, almost without exception, it divided families. Our young women were disinherited, kicked out of homes. They lost their parents. They lost their jobs. This kind of thing happened all the time on the mission field in Japan. In Nepal, same thing in China and Russia. And of course, we're seeing it here in America as well. Islamic husbands kick their wives out in the streets because they're following Jesus. They're just mean to their wives. This kind of thing happens all the time. North Korean families turn their own flesh and blood into the government. Christ came to bring a sword. He came to divide. And this country will not be much different than any other country. I'm telling you that. You think somehow we're going to absolve ourselves. And the standing for Jesus is not going to result in the splitting up of families and the persecution of people on the part of those who reject the gospel message. Absolutely that's going to happen, brothers and sisters. But here's my question. Are you ready for it? Are you, are you willing? Are you committing? Are you dedicating yourself today that whatever happens, you will walk away from your families if they will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ as King and Savior and they begin that persecution? Number six. This following Jesus involves the cross. And this is, of course, what our Lord said here in this passage. It's a resolution to a cross. And Jesus understood what this was. The Jews understood it. The Romans had presented the crucifixion thing maybe a hundred years earlier. Julius Caesar made generous use of it. And uh, they would crucify people all across Italy. They crucified people all around the Roman Empire. It was a Roman thing. And yet it becomes the, the symbol for for the Christian faith. And yet I, I fear that there's been a sentimentalization of the cross. It turns into like a good luck charm or something like that. But back then the Jews were turned off. What? The Christian life will involve crucifixion? They knew what it was. It was a horrifying death march to a crucifixion. This carrying the cross, which is what would happen. The Romans would say you've got to carry your cross all the way to the Mount of Calvary and then you get put on that cross and, and you, you, you're hung up there to die until your body dries out and the sun rots and dies. It was horrific. It was terrible. It was a slow and, and painful death. That's what Jesus was describing here as us carrying our cross. It's torturous. And yet a familiar accoutrement of the Christian life. Galatians 5 and verse 4 describes what it is first for us. Those that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I was thinking of this this week. I thought, when you crucify your flesh, 
it's kind of a process. Have any of you noticed that? Okay, so you have this lust thing. I'm sure I'm not the only person who has a lust thing in his life, whether it's material things or sexuality or whatever it is. We have this little lust thing, or big lust thing in our life. We nail it to a cross. And it sits there in the boiling hot sun and screams at you for the next two months. As as the flesh just sits there and cries out and rots and dies. And we just say, good riddance, the flesh is dying. We are crucifying the flesh with its passions and lusts. Absolutely. That's the Christian life. Or Galatians 6.14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's it's a both and. It's I'm crucifying the world and the world crucifies me. That's the deal. That means we're not on very good terms with each other. You follow me? I'm sitting here taking the world, pounding the world into a cross to die on that cross. And, And the world comes and pounds me into a cross to die on a cross, we're not getting along very well. You agree with that? We're not getting along very well, are we? When we come to, to the terms that we're crucifying each other, wow! That's intense! That's, that's the, the highest possible animosity you could ever imagine. That we have set ourselves so against the world. And then Paul says later on in that passage verse 17 from now on let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus the scars the brand marks of Jesus and he pull up his shirt and you can see count 120 stripes he was and and, oh all the times he was stoned how many times he stoned I can't remember four five six times stoned so you see 120 marks here you want to see all the stone marks when I was left for dead outside of Lystra and then made my way back into the city to to continue that evangelism campaign. You want to see the marks? You want to see how the world looks at me? This is the way the world sees me. Oh man, there's massive crucifixion going on between the world and me. Praise God. And then finally, this following Jesus involves a leaving and letting something go. This doesn't mean that we leave our families behind. Some of the apostles, as I said, continued to care for their wives and mothers, grandmothers. But there's an exclusiveness to our relationship with Jesus. And this happens to all of us. There's always points in our lives, myself included, brothers and sisters, where Jesus comes to me and says, you're going to have to let that go. You're in the process of following me, but hey, just one sec. You're going to have to let that go that sin that easily besets you, you can't carry that up this 14er. You can't carry that, you know, 60-inch screen, television screen, up the 14er. You're just going to have to drop it. That sin that easily besets you, you're going to have to let it go. You're going to have to part with it. You cannot live your life for yourself anymore. You cannot live your life for personal peace and affluence. The world says it's all about personal peace and affluence. And you say, well, if it means giving up my personal peace and my affluence and losing my job or whatever it is because I'm standing up for Jesus, 
So be it. So be it. I will let it go. And you follow him through Gethsemane and the Praetorium and then on towards the cross. This is familiar territory for the Christian life. You're always going to have to leave something behind. Your worldly ambitions, your most dearly loved sins, the favor of the world, certain ungodly friends and relations, you're just going to have to let them go. And as we let them go, we cannot have a funeral. We cannot have a memorial service for that favorite sin. We, 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 we just have to let it go and not mourn the losses of this world's love and the world's approbation, the smoking Sodom behind us, the crucified world. No sentimentality here. We're leaving it behind us. Now let me close this way. Why such urgency? Why such exclusivism for Jesus? Why does this call for such a radical commitment, a faith commitment that's willing to go all the way to the bloody end for Jesus? Why? Well, let me say it this way. Because he's worth it. That's why. He's worth it. In Luke 14, 28... We read this, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, here's a minor example to help you understand the concept of cost and value. It's very minor, but it's an illustration that I think will help you. About 15 years ago, I set out to have a discipleship center. I was committed that the discipleship of young men would cost them nothing. So we opened our tables, our homes, our rooms for young men. Didn't charge them anything. They'd stay there for three months, six months, 12 months at a time, eating at my table, borrowing my car, consuming my teaching time. For 15 years, the discipleship center has been free for probably somewhere between 25 and 30 young men. Now, here's the question for these young men. What's it worth to you? See, one of the reasons why colleges and ministries and et cetera charge people for what they do is because they need a perceived value. It's one reason why oftentimes for conferences, you charge for conferences because people do not perceive there to be a value in our society, unless you put a cost on it. And so if young men come to me and say, well, it really wasn't worth anything to me, well, they probably wouldn't put much into the discipleship anyway, probably wouldn't listen to me or any of that, right? So, I mean, that's just an illustration. But here's my question. Does free mean that there's no value to it? The fact that Jesus comes and freely gives his life for us, does that mean there's no value to Jesus? That's my question. Well, Jesus, of course, placed his life on the cross for us. And we know that the gift has no dollar sign to it. It There's no value you can place on that. It is of infinite value. So, 
Jesus gave it to us for free. And the value of it, this is the way to look at it. You're not earning this. He's already given this to you as you in faith receive him and follow him. But here's the point. You can't view it as costing nothing and valuing nothing. You have got to put a value on it, brothers and sisters. Jesus has a value to him. This has got to be the highest value in your life. The entrance fee is free, but you can't see it as not worth nothing. You've got to see it as worth your life. Well, his life, and therefore your life. Okay, does that make sense? Is that helpful? You must assess the value of it. You must assess the value of this king, this savior, this kingdom as more valuable than anything in the whole world. You value Christ, the king, his kingdom better than, more than your own marriage, your children, your life. And you must be willing to give it all up for him. Literally, Jesus puts it this way. Whoever does not say goodbye to all that he has cannot be my disciple. We are so much shocked. Hyperbole, I don't think so. These are extraordinary claims. This is an application of loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this is because of how much this king and kingdom is valued in your mind. The king is a pearl of great price, as is the kingdom itself. It's the treasure in the field for which the man gave everything, his whole life, threw away everything he owned to buy the field. It was the most valuable thing ever, an eternal kingdom an end of all evil, a reign of all righteousness, to lose everything that is worthless, fuel for the fire, traded for everything that has eternal value. It's a trade of death for life. It's a trade of empty, very obviously fake peace and fake joy, fake hope for that which is of of ultimate infinite value, absolutely true peace, joy, and hope. And it's a very good deal. It's a very good deal. The king is the essence of success, Psalm 45, prosperity, salvation, gloriousness, majesty, power, honor, love, all the values that every human being on earth should consider to be of value. Jesus puts the infinite exponent on all of that for us. So in conclusion, it's worthwhile to be with Jesus. It's worthwhile to follow him. It's worthwhile to go to where he's going. He's going to prepare a place for us. That's where he's going. It's worthwhile. This is a good journey. It has a good end. And you have to trust him and believe him and believe his words as you, as you engage this journey with him. Our Lord exhorts us to count the cost. If there are any newbies here saying, you know what? What is this? Well, you have to assess the value of it first. That's what Jesus said. Is, is this important? Is this a good thing? Is this eternal, infinite value a value to you? And is it worth you throwing your life upon it? You pay 40 bucks for a dresser from Walmart. It falls apart in a year or two. What else did you expect? You pay $4,000 for an Amish-constructed dresser, and you know it's not going to fall apart. It's going to last for seven generations, right? Isn't that right? You perceive the value of it, and so you spend the $4,000 for it because you perceive the value of it. The expectation of the modern church seems to me that Christ is worth about 40 bucks. God forbid, right? 
It's a cheap salvation. It's cheap grace. And that's because there's a cheap need. A cheap need brings about a cheap fix. I just need a Walmart fall apart that'll last me for the next six months. That's what I need. It's a cheap need. And so we go to Walmart for the cheap fix. Sorry, Walmart. I don't want you dissing Walmart. They've got some good stuff down there somewhere. But, but apply it to Jesus. Apply it to, is Jesus worth more than 40 bucks to you? What's he worth? That's the question that is being pressed upon us. What is the value of God? What's the value of his life and his salvation shared with us? Again, it comes back to our estimation of God, our estimation of his power, his holiness, the estimation of our sin and the, the curse of sin and the wrath of God on our sin, our estimation of all of this. We're saying, oh, it's all no big deal. I hardly have any need at all for Jesus. I hardly need a toning sacrifice by the Son of God on the cross. Don't really need any of that. Well, that's because you have a very low estimation of God, His holiness, his, our sinfulness, and His justice, and, and Jesus' payment on the cross for us. We're just not estimating it very high. We need to go back to the estimation, say, what is this worth? It's worth everything. Christ is the gift. He's the gift of salvation. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gifts. So the question for all of us today is, Jesus worth it? We receive Christ. We're given a test. Deny Christ or die. Deny Christ or you will have, deny Christ and you will have all this riches and honor and fame. And and people go, wow, I just need to deny Christ and I, I, I get all of this wonderful stuff the world has to offer, but you stand up for Christ in his church in times of tribulation, and you will have to suffer with the saints in the church. But of course, the rewards are infinite. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's your life, that's your job, your reputation, your love of friends and family, a bad habit, your own bitterness. Got to let it go. Your sin, God will let it go. Your idol might be a relationship in your life. A lot of idolatrous relationships these days. You got to let it go. It's an idol, an addiction in your life. Got to let it go. When the question comes down to, you will have this thing or Christ, which will you choose? Now, this is the commitment, the resolution we're placing on it this year for what's going to happen this year and next year and five years from now and 15 years from now as we tread the journey down to Calvary. Why is there such a fear of witnessing the gospel? What are we afraid of losing? What are you willing to face for the sake of Jesus Christ? I'm pressing on you, brothers and sisters. Resolve this morning, to follow Jesus. Make a commitment. Take the oath, the vow, enter the covenant. He committed to me, now I commit to him. He gave my li- his life for me, now I give my life for him. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's words in Philippians 3. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father God, we place our lives on the altar this day for Jesus.
put his life on the altar for us. Father, you committed to bring about our salvation and and committed to bring that salvation all the way to the end for us. Jesus, you loved us to the bloody end. And now you challenge us, what's it worth to you? And Father, our response this morning, everything, everything. We will give up everything for Jesus because he gave it up for us. And Father, we rest in the covenant. We rest in your promise. Our faith is there. Now our commitment is to follow Jesus for the rest of our lives. In his name we pray, amen. To commune with the living Christ. This is called communion. It's koinonia with Jesus. And the first thing you need to know about the Christian faith is that God has committed to bring about his salvation for us. God's committed to this, to preserve us to the end. We talk about persevering, yes, but it's God's preserving grace first. It's God's commitment first. We believe in God's commitment and covenant to save us to the uttermost as we come to him by faith. That's first before we get into the business of perseverance. And this is the fundamental thing, covenant, covenant. And when we take this cup, we, we, we say this every single week, and I want you to meditate on it this morning. Jesus said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, where does he get that from? Well, he gets it from Exodus. And Hebrews 9.18 says, the first covenant, the promise, the words of God laid out were affirmed or dedicated or signed in blood. Okay, that's Hebrews 9. And it's referring to what happened in Exodus 24 and verse 6. And so let me read this. This is exactly what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to Exodus 24. So what happened in Exodus 24? In Exodus 24, it's a very simple thing. What happened was, Moses read from this. Okay, what is this? Children, what is this? The Bible. That's right. The first thing Moses did was read from the Bible, which is what we did today. We read from the Bible. And Moses took half the blood and put it in a basin, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And then, here's the next thing he did. After, after reading this, he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So I'm trying to explain exactly what this is all about. What, what's going on here? What's, what's happening is God is sealing these words by blood. And he's throwing the blood on the people. I am so serious about these words that I'm going to toss all this blood on you guys to show you that I'm sealing this in blood, which ultimately would be the blood of Jesus. I was just a figure of the blood of Jesus. Now, somebody lays out a contract enumerating promises to you and then signs the document in his own blood. What are you thinking? Boy, that guy's intense. I think he means what he wrote. I mean, we don't normally do this, right? You never see, I make a promise to you and then scratch his arm and go, okay, let me sign that. You go, wow. I think he means what he says here in the document. He hands it to me and I'm like, he's serious. He's going to follow through on that. 
See, that's covenant. That's covenant. It's intense. So you say, what is this covenant? Jesus said, this is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Well, the new covenant is stipulated in Jeremiah 31. So I'm just gonna give this to you. It's, it's everything we already know. But God wrote it down, these stipulations of the new covenant. Here it is. I will put my law in your inward parts and write it in your hearts. That's regeneration. Okay, it's no longer just gonna be in the Ark of the Covenant. It's gonna be written in your hearts. That's serious. That means you're gonna live and walk by God's law. Okay, that's number one. Number two, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Relationship. Always important in the covenant. God will have a relationship with us. He will be with his people. That's why the church is so important. And then number three, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Hallelujah. Now that was signed in Jesus' blood. It was affirmed, it was inaugurated, it was signed in the blood of Jesus. And that's what we mean when we say this cup is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. That's what we mean. So whenever we take the cup, you're saying amen to that. You're saying, Jesus, you meant it. God, you meant it. I believe it. I receive it. And I'm part of this. That's what you're doing when you're receiving the cup. Receive it in faith. If you can't receive it in faith, I warn you, don't touch it. But receive it in faith this morning. And there's a little segment on how we participate in the Lord's table there in the bulletin. Read that if you're a visitor. I encourage you to do that. Okay. So, brothers and sisters, as we take the cup, here's what I want you to remember. The zeal of God. The zeal of God. His zeal is performing our salvation for us. Isaiah 9. The commitment of God for us, that he would love us to the uttermost. He loved us to the very end. He dedicated himself to it. The absolute ironclad integrity of his promises. And that this cup is the new covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus. And that calls from us what? Faith, yes, and love. He loved us, now we love him. He committed himself to us, now we're committing ourselves to him. Amen. That's, that's what I want you to express to God as, as you receive this cup and this bread and remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ today. Our Father in heaven, we receive this great promise that our sins are forgiven and, and that you have signed this, you have affirmed it in the blood of your son Jesus and you meant it and, and you're sure about it and you press the surety of it upon each of us. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit to confirm these things to us. And as we receive the cup, as we receive the bread, oh, that the life of Jesus will be known more abundantly in our lives too. And that we would respond, oh God, in love. You loved us first. You committed yourself to us first. Now we commit ourselves to you. Now we receive your love and we love you too. Oh God, that this would seal our love as this seals your love to us today at this table. In Jesus' name, amen.